Thank you. Let's pray together as we come before the Lord this morning. Lord God, we thank you so much for the beautiful snow outside. Thank you for bringing every one of us in this room here safely today. We pray, Lord, for those who are in our body who aren't with us this morning, for whatever reason, good or bad, we pray that you, Lord, would be with them today. Help them to love you, be at work in their hearts, be at work in our hearts this morning. Lord, be at work in my heart. Please, Lord, help all of us to take our eyes off of ourselves, off of me, and look at you, Lord God, because we need you. Our souls desperately need you. Help us, Lord, to love you as you should be loved and as you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name and that you would be glorified in your word being preached today. Amen. So, recently I was listening to a podcast talking about the idea that parents don't have all of the answers for everything. After sharing her own story about how she realized this, the host interviewed her 10-year-old son and asked if he could remember coming to that moment of realization in his own life. It was something that he recalled vividly. He told his mom about a time when he was seven and learned that when trouble came, his dad wouldn't automatically sense it and come to his rescue. Like a good interviewer, his mom pressed further, asking what conclusion he drew from this. Her son responded, Um, nobody can save me. It's me, myself, and I, and whatever problem surrounds me. These are the only people, the only things that are around me, and there's, there's nothing that can help me but me. And that's a scary thought for like a, a seven-year-old. Do you remember that moment in your own life, realizing that your parent, parents, your guardians and your protectors wouldn't always be there to help you with your troubles? That's not just a scary thought for seven-year-olds. It's a sobering realization for just about anyone. I wonder if Jesus' disciples on the night before his crucifixion were faced with this dawning, sobering realization. Their Lord and their leader, the one they had followed for three years and had come to love and believe in, was now telling them that he would be leaving. Their hearts were filled with sadness and sorrow. Wouldn't yours be too if you were there? If you found out that Jesus, the Son of God, was leaving you? Even here in 21st century America, do you ever long for the physical, personal presence of Jesus? I know that I do. The good news is that there is hope for Jesus' disciples, and there is hope for us too. Jesus did not leave them to be me, myself, and I, and find their own way out of trouble. He left them a helper, the Holy Spirit, who would be with them forever when he was gone. He left them with a promise that because of his work, they would have direct access to God the Father in prayer. And he left them with the promise that they would see him again. These promises weren't just for Jesus' disciples. They are for everyone who follows Jesus, including you and me. This brings us to our central theme this morning. In the face of our daily troubles and tribulations, we must remember Jesus' promises. Rejoice in the Holy Spirit's presence and request the Father's provision. Let me say that again. In the face of our daily troubles and tribulations, we must remember Jesus' promises, 
rejoice in the Holy Spirit's presence and request the Father's provision. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. As you're turning there, let's remember where we are in the story of Jesus' journey to the cross. For the past several weeks, we've been listening in to Jesus' conversation with his disciples in the upper room as he shares a meal with them for the last time before he is crucified. Jesus' desire in this conversation is to prepare his disciples for his departure and for his eventual return. We've seen him remind his disciples of his love for them and encourage them to love one another. We've seen him affirm his equality with God. We've seen him tell his disciples to expect trials and tribulations in this world like Josh shared with us last week. And we've seen him tell his disciples again and again that they will not be left alone, that he will be sending them the Holy Spirit. We've also seen over and over again how Jesus describes the Trinity. That's God as he reveals himself to us in Scripture, in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As we've been learning over these past three weeks, all three of these persons are one, one in their essence, yet distinct in their work. Uh, and as we will see today, Jesus is calling us into a relationship with our triune God. It's not me, myself, and I against the troubles of this world. God is with us. Let's begin reading in chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whomever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Here's our first point. We must remember Jesus' promises with steadfastness. There's a little story about life in Christ that I absolutely love from C.S. Lewis's novel, The Silver Chair, in the Chronicles of Narnia. In this story, a girl named Jill finds herself magically transported from England into the country of Aslan, the great lion who is the king of Narnia and who represents Jesus. Aslan gives Jill a mission to find a lost prince who has been bewitched by an evil spell. To help her, Aslan gives four signs that she will need to be on the lookout for on her journey. He tests her on them over and over again, and when she's finally ready to be sent to Narnia, he tells her this. But first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you awake in the morning and when you lie down in the night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. Remember and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. In his words to his disciples, Jesus is saying exactly this. Trouble is coming, and it will be serious and severe. Don't be surprised by that. Remember what I've told you and believe it. I don't know about you, but I can struggle to remember. 
Sure, it's easy to call the promises of Jesus to mind when you're on the mountaintop, whether that's sitting here in church on a Sunday morning or maybe in your time with the Lord during the week. But it's a completely different thing to remember Jesus' instructions when you're staring down the troubles of this life, an argument with your spouse, or a difficult, unfulfilling job, an expensive and unplanned repair, or a dysfunctional family dynamic. In these moments, it's easy for us to feel all alone, like no one is there for us. It's just me, myself, and I. This is why it's so important to remember Jesus' promises with steadfastness, to keep our minds constantly focused on them. What is it that Jesus has promised us? Well, here are some of his promises from just the last few chapters that we've been in. Following Jesus' example will result in our being blessed in John 13, 17. Showing Christ's love to each other will make others know that we are his disciples in 13, 35. Jesus is preparing a place for us in his Father's house, John 14, 2-3. Jesus will do whatever we ask in his name in 14, 14. Jesus will not leave us alone, but will come again, John 14, 18. Abiding in Christ will result in our lives bearing much fruit, 15, 15. Our joy will be made full in Christ, 15, 11. These aren't soothing words that are there to give us a brief spiritual buzz only to be forgotten the next time that trouble comes. These are fundamental truths on which we must build our lives. The lie that it's me, myself, and I can only be countered by the promise of God's presence with us. So it's essential that we remember. The fact that Jesus' promises are true doesn't mean that everything is going to be smooth sailing, though. Jesus continues in verse 4, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But I have said these things, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. How painful it must have been for the disciples, knowing that trouble was on the way and their Lord was leaving. Do you ever feel that way too? That if Jesus could just be here that if he could be physically present with you in the midst of your trials, that everything would be all right? With that in mind, what Jesus says next sounds a little hard to understand. In verse 7 he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying that it will be better for us that he leave and in his place send a helper, the Holy Spirit. This brings us to our second point this morning. We must rejoice in the Holy Spirit with assurance. Yes, Jesus is saying that in light of the Holy Spirit's coming, his departure should be a cause for joy. But why? He says in verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. First, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Well, what does he mean by this? 
The fundamental problem of sin is not that we do bad deeds, think bad thoughts, or want bad things. The fundamental problem is that in our sin, we are separated from God, willfully choosing our own desires and our own objectives over and against what He has revealed in His Word and in our own hearts. We have a belief problem. We've exchanged belief in God for belief in me, myself, and I, and confidence in our own sufficiency. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals this problem of belief to a sinful world. Because Jesus is no longer in the world, it's the Holy Spirit moving in the hearts of those that God has called to himself who has this job. This is a cause for assurance for us. Just like it took a miracle for God to change our hearts, so also it will take a miracle for Him to change the hearts and the minds of unbelievers. Think of all the unbelievers in your own life. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your children who have turned away from following the Lord. Think of your coworkers or your siblings or your in-laws who are sold out to the lies of secularism and the many substitutes that the world offers. It's hard to imagine ourselves being able to convince these people to change. And what Jesus is saying is that it's not up to us to change our hearts. This is what the Holy Spirit does. And he is doing it actively right now, maybe through you, but also through other peoples and circumstances too. But it's in him that we have that assurance and not in ourselves. Second, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I am going to the Father. What does this mean? It means that the world no longer has the perfect man, Jesus, in it to demonstrate what perfect righteousness looks like. How will a sin-sick world know what true righteousness is what, how, and how desperately we fall short of it and what's our only hope of gaining that righteousness? It's by the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. For you and me, this means that we can draw assurance in the Spirit's work by knowing that we are not alone. It's not me, myself, and I and our own idiosyncratic conceptions of what's right and wrong in any given situation. Because the Holy Spirit is with us, God himself is with us, helping to guide us in the knowledge of what's right and true. Third, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world is the devil. We like to imagine the devil as a scary, malevolent force bent on our destruction. But the real characteristic of Satan, the ruler of this world, is his complete and total refusal to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to give glory and honor to him. This isn't just true of Satan. It's also the condition of the hearts of many, many people in this world who have chosen to set themselves up as the lowercase gods of their own lives and who will persistently reject the witness and the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. This is how the Holy Spirit convicts the world in judgment. He bears witness to the truth that Jesus is king and all must either believe in him and repent or suffer the just punishment for their rejection. 
all of this is well and good and it's true, but Jesus is still leaving, isn't he? Doesn't that mean he won't be with us? So where is our joy? There's an old country song I really like that includes these words. Jesus brought me through all of my troubles. Jesus brought me through all of my trials. Jesus brought me through all of my heartaches. And I know that Jesus ain't gonna forsake me now. Those words resonate with believers in Jesus because they reflect how we live our lives. We're not alone. Jesus is truly with us. But what exactly does it mean? Let's see what Jesus says in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The way Jesus describes the Spirit here is as God himself. Just as the Father has given everything he had to Jesus, so Jesus has given everything he has to the Holy Spirit. Those three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are one triune God. And so that we rejoice in the fact that truly God is with us through all of our troubles, trials, and heartaches. We're not alone, Hope Chapel. Jesus has not left me, myself, and I to navigate the troubles of this world. He's given us a helper, God himself, indwelling each and every one of us who believes in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is living and active, working to convict the world of sin and guiding us minute by minute in clinging to the precious promises of Christ. This should lead us to rejoice. It's not us. It's our Lord in us. Even as he is providing his disciples with assurance of his promises in anticipation of the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is still facing the darkest moment of his life on earth. He is still about to leave his disciples, and he still needs to prepare them for this. We read in verse 16, please read with me. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Truly, I say to you, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. 
truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This brings us to our third point. In addition to remembering Jesus' promises and rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, we must request the Father's provision with confidence. In the 1860s, toward the end of the Civil War, the most important and powerful man in the United States was the president, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was faced with the difficult tasks of leading a divided nation back together, winning a war, and presiding over unprecedented societal change and upheaval. To say that he was pressed for time would have been an understatement. Every minute, some matter demanded his attention. But during this time, one of the brightest spots in Lincoln's life was his youngest son, Tad. Tad knew how much his father loved him. No matter what Lincoln was doing or where he was going, even if he was in a presidential cabinet meeting, Tad had the confidence that he could always interrupt with any need or question he had for his father. In this passage, Jesus is telling the disciples something incredible. Because of the work that he is about to do, they will have little child access to the Father. This is amazing. No one else in the country could have run through the halls of power in the White House with the same freedom that Tad Lincoln had, or they'd have been thrown out, or worse. This is true today. Which one of us could imagine walking right up to the President of the United States and simply start asking him for what we need? But how much greater than the President is our God? How much more awesome in power and might, in holiness and glory, who are we with our sinful thoughts and attitudes that we dare to address him in prayer, much less make requests of him? Yet Jesus is saying, I'm going to make a way for you to approach the Father with boldness. And more than that, you will be able to ask him for whatever you need in my name. And more than that, he will give you whatever you need abundantly for your great good and for his great glory. How is this going to happen? Let's go back to what Jesus says in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to be captured by his enemies, the religious rulers of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees who have been plotting his destruction. He will be handed over to the Romans to be tortured, mocked, publicly humiliated, and put to death in one of the most physically painful ways imaginable. All of this for a man that his disciples were sure was the promised one, the one who would restore Israel and usher in a new era of prosperity for the long-suffering, weary world. He's going to be taken from them and killed. Yet the world will rejoice, and the disciples' sorrow will turn into joy. How can that be? It's because of what Jesus' death and resurrection will accomplish. By dying on the cross and rising again, he will be doing something much, much greater than geopolitical conquest or meeting all of our momentary wants and needs. By dying on that cross, Jesus will be taking on himself all the sin of us and all of our shame, all the ways that we fall short before God, every single thing that separates us from the Father. And in their place, Jesus gives us his righteousness. 
Imagine that. By his death, he will make us righteous before God, making us sons and daughters of God. This is why the world rejoices. This is why our sorrow turns into joy. But we still have those wants and needs, don't we? Each and every one of us in this room today is weighed down by troubles and cares. How does Jesus' reconciliation of us with the Father help with those? Jesus knows this about us. One day, those who believe in him will be raised to new life in heaven. But until then, we are here in this world with all of its trials and tribulations. So Jesus tells us what to do. In verse 23, he says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Jesus isn't talking here about God as a cosmic vending machine, always on standby to dispense whatever our wandering desires may want at any given moment. No, Jesus is painting a picture of a God who desires a deep relationship with us and wants us to have a deep relationship with him. Let me say that again. Our God desires a deep relationship with us and wants us to have a deep relationship with him. The things we ask God, therefore, should flow out of that relationship. The Bible says that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, bearing all of our sins, everything that separates us from God, in his immeasurable holiness. In return, Jesus grants us his righteousness, presenting us as pure and blameless before God as he is himself. This is how a holy God can forgive our sins and accept us as sons and daughters alongside Christ. God did not do all of this just so that we could be at his beck and call, answering our whims and fancies, giving us everything that we think we need for happiness in this life. No, he sent his son into the cross at an infinite cost because he loves us because he wants a relationship with us, because he wants to draw us into fellowship with himself, to love us and for us to love him with the same Christ-exalting, spirit-dependent, father-trusting relationship we see exhibited in the Trinity itself. And we have that relationship with God because of Jesus' work. So how do we know how to approach him? How do we know what to ask for, for what we need? We know what to ask for through the helper that Jesus promised us, the Holy Spirit. Jesus has promised that the Holy Spirit will be with us forever, that he will guide us in all truth, and that he will take what is Jesus's and declare it to us. He will make known the Father's heart to us, changing our own hearts and desires to want what God wants. So we must follow the Spirit's lead in requesting whatever we need from the Father in the name of the Son, having assurance that God will delight in granting our requests. Jesus has told us 
to do three things. Remember his promises. Rejoice in the Spirit and request whatever we need from God the Father. With all this in mind, he finally tells his disciples explicitly what he is about to do. In verse 28 we read, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. I think we're meant to smile a little sadly at the disciples' reaction. Finally, you've been direct and clear and told us what's about to happen. And of course, we believe everything you say. You came from God, the source of all truth. Case closed, class dismissed, good talking with you. But there's a difference between intellectual belief and life-changing, purpose-giving, bedrock of hope belief. Jesus' disciples still don't comprehend what is about to happen to their Lord and how their lives are about to change because of it. Jesus patiently challenges them in verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. So Jesus leaves them with a warning. Their overconfidence in their own strength and belief will lead them to flee and leave him alone. We should take this warning to heart. Belief in Christ at an intellectual level alone doesn't matter. It's what you build your life on that matters. Where you find your hope and your joy that truly reveals what you believe. It's what you build your life on that matters, church. Where does your hope come from? Where does your joy come from? That's what shows what you believe. But Jesus also leaves his disciples with an encouragement. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Yes, Jesus is going to depart the world, but the triune God has not left us alone. We have the promises of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit as our helper. And we have the Father to whom we make our requests with joy and confidence, knowing that he will provide everything we need. I'd like to close this morning by asking you to imagine something with me. This is a story I learned from the pastor of the church I attended growing up. As a matter of fact, it's the same church that Kurt Eichley went to when he was at Divinity School in Chicago. Imagine with me that you're in a dark room, and that room is your life. As you're standing there looking around and your eyes adjusting to the darkness, you hear a low, growling sound. You become aware that you're not alone in that room. Just a few feet away from you, there's a tiger. And that tiger is bent on your destruction. You also gradually become aware of a buzzing sound, and you realize that there are some wasps and mosquitoes flying around in the room up in the air, and they're going to sting you whenever they get the chance. But those wasps and mosquitoes aren't the problem. It's the tiger. You're terrified. You're out of your wits. There's nothing you can do that tiger is going to kill you and devour you. All of a sudden, 
A door opens in that room and a man walks in. He strides right up to the tiger and drawing a sword from his side, he plunges it straight into the beast, killing it dead. Then the man walks over to you and he says, that tiger would have ended you, but I've taken care of him. He can't hurt you anymore. Yes, there are still some wasps and mosquitoes here in this room of your life and they will still sting you and it'll hurt. But you know what? I'll be here with you. I'll help you. And one day, I'm going to take all, care of all of them too. And I'll take you away from this dark room. And you can come and live with me forever. Would the worship team please come up? Hope Chapel, your greatest problem is not the daily trials and tribulations of this life. It's not the difficulties in your marriage. It's not your job. It's not how you're going to pay the mortgage this month. It's not even the crippling feelings of loneliness, the sense that no one will come to save you, that it's just me, myself, and I. The man who told me that story has cancer. His greatest problem isn't cancer. Our greatest problem is the sin that separates us from God. On our own, we can't do anything about it. We stand before God, dead in our sins, unable to escape from the consequences of our own evil deeds and our own moral failures. But Jesus has solved our greatest problem. He's taken all of our sins onto himself, receiving the full penalty that we deserved and reconciling us to God. He's killed the tiger. He's coming back one day, and on that day he will wipe away all of our tears and make everything that's wrong in this world right. And until that happens, the Holy Spirit, God himself, is with us reminding us of his promises, enabling us to ask the Father for whatever we need, and giving us cause for much joy. So let's remember, request, and rejoice. Take heart. He has solved our greatest problem. He's overcome the world. Please pray with me. Lord God, we know that we need you. But at the same time, Lord, we have no idea how much we need you. We thank you, Lord, so much that you have not left us alone, that we're not here by ourselves. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is here with us, reminding us of your promises, helping us request whatever we need from you, Father, and enabling us to rejoice in you. We thank you for solving our greatest problem. We thank you for taking our sins on yourself. And we pray, Lord, that you would be at work in us to change us, to help us to believe in you more and more. Change our hearts that we may find that confidence in you. We need you, Lord God. We thank you for what you've done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.